What do people see when they examine your life? You know, you'll make a mistake and you'll hear, oh, that's what a Christian does. And you're just like, oh, man. All this time I've been sharing with them, sharing with them, sharing with them. And finally, you know, this, people are watching our lives. They're listening to what we say. They're, they're reading what you post on Facebook. People read that. They, they look at your pictures. And it's good to have an example that you can, look, you can say, no, this is my life. It's not just what I say. This is my life. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life. That I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for. Here in America, we're accustomed to getting things we want in an instant, from instant messaging through our phones to fast food. And we don't typically like to wait now, do we? So when God has us in the waiting room, it can be a real challenge. Today on Abounding Grace, we'll see that after waiting quite a while, David is finally king over a unified Israel. It didn't happen overnight as God needed to prepare his servant. Let's see what we can take away from this as we join Pastor Ed Taylor in 2 Samuel 4 and 5. Abner, remember, was mercilessly killed by Joab back in chapter 3. Joab, partly political but mostly personal, took matters into his own hands and he took Abner out. And that seems to be a theme throughout our study in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that warning not to take things in our own hands. With Abner dead now, the tribes of Israel are vulnerable. They're vulnerable because the weak leadership of the puppet king Ishbosheth. So keep that in mind as God is using all these things and working all things together, just like he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All these series of events where you're like, oh no, and how could this happen? And, and we watch them unfold, but keep this in mind because God uses it all to bring about a unified kingdom. So notice verse 1 of chapter 4. And when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one is Baana, and the name of the other is Rechab the sons of Rimmon, the Beherathite of the children of Benjamin. For Beheroth also was part of Benjamin because the Beherathites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there until this day. Verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as they made haste to flee that he fell and became lame, so his name was Mephibosheth. Keep him in mind as a later chapter. We'll spend some time looking at him. Verse 5. Then the sons of Rimmon, the Beherathite, Rechab and Baana, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bahana, his brother, escaped. Now, for when they had came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. 
And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. The chapter begins with the discouragement of Ishbosheth. He, he's used, he's, he lost his right hand man. Really, he lost the man that was giving him the right information and the kind of leadership that gave him a comfort in overseeing the country, overseeing the tribes of Israel. But as we know, so goes the leader, so goes the people. And in verse 5 now, you have one man's weakness and vulnerability, a time of sorrow and sadness, a time in Ishbosheth's life of having to assess everything, having to consider now leading the country on his own when he knows he really didn't belong there. Now, having lost his right-hand man, he becomes weaker and vulnerable. And it's unfortunate, and we've seen this time and again, both biblically and in regular life, that one man's vulnerability and weakness is often seen by another man as an opportunity to take advantage of him. And it's always sad. One of the ways to say that is when, you know, when times get tough, you find out who your real friends are. And you find out who your real enemies are. And here's a tough time. And the hearts of people are being revealed. And an opportunity was taken by these guys, Rechab and Baana. They come about the heat of the day, it says in verse 5, the time of the afternoon nap. And they sneak in while he's sleeping and cut his head off. And so what did Ishbosheth do? Like, what did he do to deserve this? He didn't do anything. No doubt weakened over the reality of his, the current situation and having to assess all the responsibilities. The murder of Abner was merciless, but the, this murder was heinous. And that really is the environment. Ishbosheth did nothing. All he, he suffered for just being Saul's son. So they come to David and they bring his head there and they come with great confidence as if this act would have pleased David. Verse 9. David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who I thought would give him a reward, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed him, executed them, cut off their hands and feet, hanged them by the pool in Hebron, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So once again, David is faced with a situation where he's required to declare his innocence of this evil act. He wanted it to be clear, this, this isn't, I, I have nothing to do with this. Because again, you've got a personal thing going on in David's life, but you also have a political thing going on at this time because the kingdoms are divided. You have Judah uh, being overseen by David and Hebron, and you have the tribes of Israel overseen by Ishbosheth and with Abner. So there's also a political thing going on here, and he's declaring his innocence both as a man as a lead, and as a leader. He, he gives them a story, and he reminds them the last time somebody tried to do this. It would be wise for them to have paid attention to that. Perhaps they never heard it. 
But verse 9 is very encouraging. David declares the faithfulness of God. He says, as the Lord lives who redeemed my life from all adversity. Now, that's a pretty big statement because he's covering about 10 years of his life, the last 10 years of his life. The 10 years of his life that connected him with Saul. The 10 years of his life that connected him with the son of Saul, Ishbosheth. And when he looks back on the 10 years, he says, God has delivered me from all adversity. God gets the glory. It, it would be hard in the midst of the 10 years. But now as he looks back, God is beginning to reveal to him his faithfulness in, better, in greater ways. The Lord has redeemed my soul out of all adversity. In other words, David has learned an important lesson. And that was his commitment of his life to the Lord. He learned to commit his life to the Lord. He learned to commit the things of his life to the Lord. He learned in many ways by his mistakes and by his successes not to take things into his own hands. Why? Because when he took things into his own hands, he failed. When he allowed the Lord to, to act on his behalf, there was great success. But when he sums up 10 years, all the time that we studied through 1 Samuel, or at least the second half of 1 Samuel, he looks back and he goes, you know, the Lord delivered me. All the adversity, God has delivered me. He's taken care of me. I, I don't need you guys to commit such a heinous sin on my behalf. I don't need you to take out Ishbosheth. I don't need you to, to, to do anything in the flesh on my behalf. You know, that, I, I was thinking as I was jotting down my notes, you know, and I wrote it down. Oh, that we would learn that lesson. That we would learn it once and for all. I, I'm often trying to take things into my own hands. I often find myself jumping in where I could have let the Lord jump in. I find myself trying to fix things or put things together. At other times, I think I can help the Lord out a little. Do you guys think you can help the Lord out a little? Just a little bit, not much, just a little. I'm often guilty of moving out on my own. I'm often guilty of doing what I feel needs to be done, not being led of the Lord, rather than just committing it to the Lord and trusting him to act on my behalf. Just leaving it in the Lord's hands. Such a place of faith. A place of faith leaving things in the Lord's hands. He's teaching and I'm learning, but not as fast as I would like. We grow through our successes, don't we? But we also grow through our failures and how we respond to our failures. And to some degree, David's learned his lesson. In another way, he's got a lot more to learn. The Lord has redeemed me out my... He says, the Lord has re, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. The Lord delivered me. I don't need man. I've got the Lord working on my side. And what a lesson to learn. These guys came to David thinking that through their heinous crime, David would be happy and join in and reward them. They fully expected to be rewarded. They fully respected, expected to be praised. They thought that David was going to exalt them, maybe give them a place, make them generals in the army or see their great skill. I mean, what a, what a sight that must have been. The last time we find David with a head was the enemy of God being destroyed. And the name, his name is Goliath. He doesn't need his help to take down an innocent, uh, what, who David calls a righteous man, where his only mistake, if you will, or his only issue is being Saul's son. And so David appeals to his example. It's always good to have a life above reproach 
that when you are sharing with someone or talking to someone, that you can appeal to your own example, to your own previous actions, where you can look like Paul would often say, where he would come and, and as he's writing to the church, he's to say, you know how I came to you. He writes in Acts chapter 20 to the elders of Ephesus, you remember I was among you. I didn't take anything from you. I just came to serve. He would write to another church, you know, we worked with our own hands to provide for our own needs. He would appeal to his own example. And in many cases, we can't do that. We can look back in our lives and see many examples. And then, of course, there are times in our lives where our example is not to be appealed to. But it's a good place to be, don't you think, as a believer, where you can appeal not only to the examples of the scriptures, but you can appeal to your own, relational, your own relationship and the example that you've given to be above reproach. Our lives are as important or even more so than our words, our lives. Paul would often refer back to his noticeable actions. Jesus would too in John chapter 10, verse 37. We just looked at it not too long ago. He said, don't believe me unless I carry out my father's work. But if I do his work, believe in what I have done, even if you don't believe me then you'll realize that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. Hey, if you don't want to believe what I say, then just believe what I do. Now, what a testimony that is. So don't, don't, if you don't want to believe what I say, we spend so much time with our words trying to convince, but just say, hey, believe what I do. Watch my life. Even if you don't ask people to watch your life, people are watching your life. You'll have people in your life, you know, especially, there'll be those that don't have any relationship with the Lord, but they think they're the experts on what it means to be, have a relationship with the Lord, and they'll call out every mistake they ever see in you. And you'll have some mistake, you know, you'll make a mistake, and you'll hear, oh, that's what a Christian does. And you're just like, oh, man. All this time I've been sharing with them, sharing with them, sharing with them, and finally, you know, this, people are watching our lives. They're listening to what we say. They're, they're reading what you post on Facebook. People read that. They, they look at your pictures. And it's good to have an example that you can, look, you can say, no, this is my life. It's not just what I say. This is my life. So before we move on to chapter 5, um, just again, mark and maybe read ahead in verse 4, Mephibosheth. Just mark his name. Mark his life. He's this handicapped child the next time we meet him. Uh, he's the only living heir now to King Saul's throne. And we'll meet him again in future champ chapters. If you want to study ahead, please do. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, we, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall, be sh you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So with Ishbosheth dead, the 11 tribes of Israel had no king. Abner, you'll recall, was already putting something together and bringing, the, bringing all the tribes together, both Judah and the 11 of Israel. And he had already brought them together. But now that decision is to be ratified. 
And finally, David is now receiving the promise of God after 10, really many more years because we have a few years before when he was first anointed as a young kid, a young lad that was called in after all his brothers were looked over and not chosen, but he was anointed. He was anointed many times and now finally, you know, you get that place where finally the will of God is being accomplished. The leaders of Israel come to Hebron and remind David that he belongs to the whole nation, not just Judah. And the covenant was ratified in Hebron and now David's king. Isn't it one of the hardest things to do in your Christian life is waiting on the Lord? And think of waiting on the Lord with all the kind of warfare and all the kind of nonsense that happens. And, and yet David reminds us that, hey, you want to mark verse 3. All the elders came and, made, and King David made a covenant with them and they anointed David king over Israel. He is now the kingdom of God at this point is now a united kingdom under one king. Finally, it's come to pass. When David was younger, Samuel, remember, anointed him privately in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Then the elders of the tribe of Judah had anointed him when he became their king at 30 years of age in 2 Samuel chapter 2. But now the elders of the unified nation anoint David and proclaim him as their king. And when you see anointing in the scriptures, it speaks of the empowering of the Lord. It speaks of the authority of the Lord, the ability of the Lord, and the approval of the Lord. Anointing is a very serious thing. Today in the church, what we do is we lay hands on. We don't have the ability to give the anointing of God. God himself gives the anointing. And what we find in, in our leadership is we recognize the hand of God in someone's life and we lay hands on them. We, have, we believe in the doctrine of laying on of hands of the leadership to encourage someone in their calling, to encourage someone in the empowering that God has given them, to encourage someone in the authority that God has given them, to encourage someone in the ability and the approval that God has given to them. David was a seasoned warrior and a gifted leader who was obviously had the blessing of God upon his life. It was obvious. His entire life was used to prepare him for this day. His entire life up to this point was used of God to prepare him for this day. Do you know the same is true for you? Everything in your life is preparing you for what's up ahead. You could say that everything in your life prepared you for this night, this Bible study. It may not be a very significant Bible study for you. It may not be a very significant date on the calendar. You, you, it may be just seen as another day serving the Lord. But for some of you, someone listening in right now, today's a very significant day. God revealed himself in an amazing way. Something was fulfilled in your life. Something came to pass in your life. God gave some word to you. And you can say and think in your own mind that my whole life God used to bring me to this day. I mean, how encouraging is that? I think if we would have dropped into David's life in the middle, in the beginning of his time running in the wilderness, I believe it would be hard to convince him that God was going to use the wilderness to prepare him to being king. I mean, don't kings go to king school? Isn't that how they get trained? I mean, don't they just get trained through the order and, you know, getting ready and all the protocol and how to hold the, the knife and, you know, all of the, isn't that how kings get trained? Well, some have the privilege of going through a, an easier school like that, but not David. David was trained a completely different way. He was trained in the wilderness, on the run, being chased by another king, having spears thrown at him, 
having him, his life at peril and all the men with him, being surrounded with all those that were discouraged, all those that were in debt. Remember, they got so mad at David when Ziklag was invaded by the Amalekites that they turned on him and wanted to stone him. It was his lowest moment, right after a backslidden time. And yet we learn he encouraged himself in the Lord. And his entire life was used to prepare him for this day. After experiencing years of turmoil and discord, the nation at last has a king unified in the purposes of God. And God does take time to prepare his leaders. It doesn't happen overnight. And much is to be pitied, as once said, the person who succeeds before he or she is ready for it. There's a lot of learning that takes place in God's way and God's timing. And I believe if we were to drop into David's life any time in the last 10 years and said, don't worry about it, David, it's coming. Don't worry about it. Eight more years. Oh, eight more years. You know, he's like, eight more years. Can it be eight more months? No, it's eight more years. And then you come again. No, it's five more years. And there it's come a point in time where David would just assign himself and commit himself to the Lord. All right, it's eight more years. I mean, I'm sure you, some of you are waiting for things right now that even if God said eight years, you would be a little bittersweet. You go, eight more years, but then you go, okay, all right. I'm going to count the days, you know. Eight, I'm going to do all the multiplication. If it's just eight years, I'll take it. I'll endure it. But God doesn't do that. We don't know when it'll end. We have a, we have a relationship with Jesus uh, that we walk by faith, not by sight. If we could have the na- days up on a wall and just kind of... And it's like, okay, we're almost there. Then where would be the faith? We'd be counting the days and not living by faith. And some of you are trying to count the days right now when you need to be living by faith. Hey, thanks for taking part in today's study from 2 Samuel on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. Ed, have you noticed through the years that people in the ministry and in general often want to bypass the preparation season? And what would your counsel be to those that are finding it difficult to wait on God? You know, I have found over the years uh, that it's difficult to, uh, to be developed. We, it's, it, we, we're in a society and a culture that says, give me everything now. And, and, and I don't want it just complete. I want it now. And there's an impatience to, to us that is more than just our flesh. It's our culture. And the Bible says not to despise the days of small things. And I think the first mistake we make is thinking anything is small as it relates to God. Nothing's small. Everything's huge that God would entrust to us to love people and serve them. And my counsel would be to find, your, find some, some men and women in your life that can pray for you and come alongside of you and help you in this area of impatience, number one. And number two, to cultivate obedience in your life. Obedience you know, the Bible, Jesus taught us, taught us this. He said, if you're faithful in the little, you'll be made ruler of many. And if you're unfaithful with the little, what little you have will be taken away from you. And I'm grateful that God made faithfulness the key because we can all cultivate faithfulness in our lives by taking regular steps of obedience. And so, you know, involve someone, help, let someone uh, keep you accountable to this, pray, praying with you and encouraging you. But you can respond by taking faithful steps of obedience. Uh, and, and maybe you need to confess. I was just thinking, you know, maybe you need to confess that sin to your leader and say, would you please help me? Because I'm just getting impatient and trust the leaders that God's put in your life. Uh, they're there ordained by him. Thanks for sharing that, Ed. 
Are you interested in a CD copy of this message? We can send that your way for $2 if you call toll-free 877-30-GRACE. Again, that's 877-304-7223. For instant access, look for the studies online at calvaryaurora.org. Another way to listen to Ed's teachings is through the Calvary Aurora app. Search for Calvary Aurora. And while you're at it, download the Grace FM Colorado app. This is a great way to grow on the go. Wouldn't you like to experience revival and power in your life? Well, we picked out an excellent book this month that can help you get on that road. It's The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. This classic book has helped millions experience personal revival with Jesus Christ. When you give a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace, you're invited to request a copy of The Calvary Road. Give us a call at 877-30-GRACE or make a secure donation online at calvaryaurora.org. And those that prefer to write, here's our mailing address, Abounding Grace, Post Office Box 460-598, Aurora, Colorado, 80046. We'll get back into 2 Samuel next time on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We'll see you then. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Aurora.